Mikey, welcome. Hello. Two plus two equals five. Radiohead. Why did you choose that track to kick off 2003? It was um, it was a it was a changing time in music, right? So I mean, that was probably the last. I don't think it's the last CD I remember buying or or you know, but you know, you're coming up to that musical revolution that followed, and it's just you know, when you had a CD or back in the day a cassette or whatever, it was like you want to you start at the beginning, you work your way to the end, that. That kind of concept doesn't have happen anymore. People just get tracks. They just, they have, they stream stuff. They do all sorts. And it was just kind of the fact that that was the first one. It's probably not even my favorite track off the album. It's just the fact that it's the first one. It's like, yeah, that's what you do. You kind of, you used to listen to albums, remember? You know, it's just, it's just those days are gone. And it's just kind of a, a happy memory as well. That was my, that was my soundtrack to, to moving back to Dubai as well. Mikey, I, I owe my radio head love partly to you. We had a conversation oh. in Dubai in the mid 2000s wow. and yeah. um i knew radiohead were meant to be good but you gave me yeah. this long 
winding story about the albums and how, <laughs> how it's a journey with the albums. And then fast forward to 2011 and somebody bought me uh, King of Limbs and then I worked backwards. So now wow. I'm on, I think now finally I've hit the bends oh, over, wow. over a nine year period you, you, working backwards. So you, when can I finish, after, you can stop after the bends. Thank right. you. Thank you. Uh, I'm, only kidding, I'm only kidding. That's harsh. <laughs> so take us back to 2003, Mikey, to describe your universe for us. A very changing time. I was um, uh, lucky enough to be made redundant uh, in this job that I hated in, uh, in Glasgow, in Scotland. And uh, I say lucky enough, it was the best thing to ever happen to me, you know? It was just, you know, you're in a job you don't like in a city you've kind of fallen out of love with. Um, and uh, the fact that I got a little bit of a payout meant I could come back to Dubai and, and sort of start something anew, and you know, and I did. And just, you know, it's just after you'd moved back, yourself and Shahi and, you know, and there's so many other people that were in that, that space at the time that just made it home again. It was, a, it was a, a big, bold move, but, but one I'll never regret. It's fantastic. Well, let's go back to the beginning, Mikey. Tell us where you were born. Give us a little bit of a, a family history talk. Give us an overview of the childhood. The childhood was um, moved. I was born in Inverness in the north of Scotland to uh, Scottish parents, Highlanders, you know, the Tuchter kind of clan, the... Uh, the rural uh, upbringing never really happened because at the age of four, I moved to Sharjah, the metropolis that is Sharjah. I drove through it the other day. It hasn't changed since 1981. <laughs> um, moved to Sharjah, did all my schooling in the UAE, uh, Sharjah and then Dubai. Went to school with uh, some, some beautiful, beautiful people. <laughs> As Tell you us know. About, uh, about the family, siblings, parents. Oh yeah, of course. So give us a little bit well, more of the dynamic. Well, why did, why did they move to Sharjah? Absolutely. Um, my old man, actually, before him, we moved to Sharjah, was working in Baghdad. He was in sort of in construction, you know, and he was just living there on his own. Um, and if you remember, you know, in the, in the, in the early 80s, they, a little bit of a war broke out with Iran. So he got evacuated out of Baghdad into, into Jordan, but thoroughly liked the Middle East and desperately wanted to not be in our sort of hometown of, uh, of Dingwall or Invergordon, as it was at the time. And so... June 5th, so this is 39 years just gone, 39 years in, in, uh, in the UAE. Uh, June 5th, with the whole family moved out. I remember it. I remember it very, very vaguely, because I was very young. And then um, six months later, my mom, God bless her, died. It was uh, a little bit tragic. Again, you know, one of those things I, I, I don't really remember, which is a shame. Um, three boys, there's myself and two older brothers, Neil and Ken. Um, then uh, a few years later, my dad remarried to uh, my now mom, obviously, uh, Razwa, Lebanese, beautiful, beautiful mama. They had, uh, so I have another brother, so little Ramsey. Ramsey's, uh, so he'd be 10 years younger than me. He's moved back to Dubai now as well, so we get to hang out a lot. He's got a couple of kids, and, you know, it's fine to have that kind of family dynamic back here, you know. Yeah, mom and dad have retired to, to the south of France, uh, where they're very happy, you know. Funny, listening to them during the lockdown, they're kind of going, how's the lockdown going in France? And they go, I don't know, it's nothing different for us. We stay at home, we go for one walk a day, and that's it, you know, like, <laughs> nothing changes. Uh, they're in good form. My two uh, eldest brothers are back in, still in Scotland. I don't think they'll leave. One in Glasgow, one in Aberdeen. Uh, and yeah, so that's the fam. Any additional specific memories? I mean, you said you don't remember much about your, your mother passing, God bless her soul. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
or your father remarrying. Any kind of clear memories around those two, what sound like really milestone events in your childhood? Do you know a fun little thing? Because when I was, um, for a few years, I, mean, you were, I think you were still around living in Dubai. I was working with Charles Chaka. I was uh, working for him, editing the Infusion magazine. And I always ask this question of people. You ask them, what's your earliest musical memory? Just as a nice sort of fluff question that you can ask people. And, and I, I still have a cassette here that I had from the early 80s, or at least my dad had from the early 80s. You remember the old school pirate cassettes we used to buy all the time? We had, uh, we had them, you know? And I still have one or two here that are my earliest musical memories. And it was just so weird that you remember, I just remember these vague memories of driving around in the car and these two albums were always on. One is The Works by Queen and one is Outlandos d'Amour, the first Police album. Um, amazing albums, both of them, you know, but just, those are my earliest musical memories. And it was really cute because about 10 years ago, my eldest brother, Ken, I told him that I was asking these questions. I was like, I don't know why these are my strongest sort of early musical memories. And he said, it was, well, and it's, it's quite sad, really, but it's also quite beautiful in that we spent so much time in the car in that when uh, our mum was, was sick, she had cancer, she had um, melanoma. The only hospital at the time uh, that would treat her was in Alain. Now that's a, an hour and a half drive from Sharjah. So we'd spend every day back and forth to Alain and I'd be, you know, a young boy sleeping in the back of the car, just these, these sounds perpetually just sort of etched in your brain forever, right? And it's, uh, it's quite, a, it's quite a nice story. So I've still got those cassettes. That's like a beautiful that. story, Mikey. I've known you more than 30 years and I had <laughs> never heard that story. Well, no, because I, I didn't know it until relatively recently. And it's just, you know, and obviously not working with the infusion anymore. These, these things kind of like, you, they get lost a little bit, you know, you stop, you get out of habits and, and, and so, yeah, but it is a great story. I do like that one. It's something you kind of cling on to. What do you think attracted your father to the Middle East and what, do you, were there any Middle Eastern influences that you think you picked up growing up in Sharjah with a, a sort of a split Middle Eastern mother? Oh, absolutely. My mum and I, I, I find that really cute that, that, that me and my, my mum, because her being Lebanese, you know, you kind of, I, I think I, got, I picked up, you know, the French and, and some Arabic, obviously, and Arabic, obviously, from you and all the guys at school, you know. That was always a weird one as well. You learn a lot about language and stuff. And I think that's always been my forte because you, it's all about communication and, and how to, to deal with various people and, you, and you've got to find different ways of doing it, whether you do it through music, whether you do it through language, whatever, writing, whatever. I think uh, that was always one thing I always, uh, I always loved my mum for, was just the idea that, you know, language, she was great at English and that's her third language. And I always thought that was thoroughly impressive. And so you always want to emulate that. Uh, you definitely learn that. And there's that kind of idea as well. You learn a lot about sort of extended Arabic culture because you go from, from you know, from Oman and, and, and Saudi and the Gulf all the way down to sort of Morocco, you know. And I've, I've had the pleasure of having friends from various Arabic-speaking countries and none of them, none of them, the languages are the same. None of the dialects are, I mean, there's some similarities, obviously, but you just kind of, I got that early, you know, from going to, to Cairo. You meet that and you're kind of listening to Egyptian and you're like, baguettes and you're like what they don't say that in Lebanon they don't do that they don't do that in the... and everyone makes fun of everyone else's language and you're kind of like all right cool it's it's actually quite funny you know the Egyptians are the the the, the jokers the the storytellers the Lebanese are the Haiti the uh, three languages in one sentence hi kifak you know and then the Khalijis are just so like you know rough <laughs> there's the kind of sure 
<laughs> we'll dig into the the Khalijis a little bit more when we get to Rashid school. But before we go mm. there, what was Sharjah like, and what was primary school like? To just describe the city, growing up in the city, and tell us about the the early school experience. I remember having a great time. You know, you you oh, really fond memories of, of of both schools. I was at the Sharjah English School. Um, obviously, it was sort of near my dad's work, and it was really handy. That's why we're there. But I have got great memories of that, you know, and it's just kind of standard school stuff. You know, you've got your pals, you've got your friends, you hang out at weekends with them, and you kind of football at half, you know, playtime and all the kind of stuff. It's just, it's really nice. I drove past the, the site of where the school used to be. It's been replaced now with a, a completely different school. But the Sharjah Wanderers Club is still next to it as well. So I went down there. Sharjah Wanderers, I, I don't think you've ever been, have you? Charger Wonders is an institution. I think it's basically, it's considered like hallow ground, you know? It's like the, uh, uh, the, because of the Trucial States previous to being the United Arab Emirates, the Trucial States, and they had that land that was given to Britain that was sort of governing at the time. And so now whenever we have like a, a, like a, a holy, you know, day here where everyone goes on lockdown and they're not allowed to serve alcohol and all that kind of you know, stuff, Charger Wonders stays open. So everyone drives down to Charger and just gets, you know, and just gets drunk, <laughs> which is dangerous because Sharjah's 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 very much, you know, they can, they can, you, you don't want to be put in jail in Sharjah, I'll tell you that much. It hasn't changed much in like, you know, what the 40 years, now on 40 years I've been there. But I still enjoy going through it. I love a little drive around, seeing my old haunts, the old houses we used to live in. And just remember the kind of, you know, just that it seemed like a normal childhood. You, you know, you talk to people, in the UK or anywhere in the world, and they kind of go, how'd you, how'd you grow up here? What's it like? You're kind of going, it's home. You know, it's like asking anyone what their home is like. It's like, well, what did you do? I played as a kid. I went out and played football, you know? And it, it's only when you're older, you, in retrospect, you kind of look back and go, I was really lucky because you could just run outside, you know, walk a mile and play football with the guys in the, in the park next door. And there's never any issue of security, safety, anything like that. And you were very lucky in that respect. Well, we used to do that as well. We just jump on bikes and just disappear for hours on end, you know. <laughs> well, why don't we go into Rashid School for Boys, which is, of course, how we know each other. Why don't you Absolutely. tell the listeners a little bit about what a, what a strange school it was and, and how on earth did you even get into that school? Um, well, I mean, I don't know how I got in. I know exactly how you got in. I mean, let's not, you know. Do, do, do your listeners understand the concept of wasta? Where are our listeners today all around the world? Wasta is a great way to begin this conversation. What is wasta nah, for yeah, the I, listeners? Wasta is, is the, the French would call it le bras long, the, the long arm, influence. Uh, who you know, not what you know. You know, wasta. Actually, I've never worked out what the actual etymology of the word is. I mean, uh, do you know? I do not. I bet, we Shah, look that I bet up. Shahi would know. So Rashid School for Boys, tell us a little Rashid bit about, about, describe it for us. How did it compare to the Sharjah English School? Uh, tell mm. us about the, the culture. What was it like being dropped in I, from, from that to, to that? It, would, it was different, but at the same time, I was well prepped. I think I got in because I was, uh, my two brothers, eldest brothers, were lucky enough to get in when the, when the school opened. So uh, for those who don't mean this was school was opened up essentially for Said and Rashid bin, bin Maktoum, uh, the, the, who was the, the then ruler previous to uh, Sheikh Mohammed. 
So Sheikh Mohammed's eldest brother, basically. So his two kids were coming to the age of like, you know, nine, 10, and they needed secondary school. So as in true Dubai fashion, what do we do? Build a school, build this, let's go build a damn school and they can go there. And so my brothers were lucky enough to get in. So I, I think, you know, I still had to pass yeah. exams and whatever and, and still get in. So somehow I managed to do that. Uh, and so I was lucky. So, you, you know, you kind of go along and visit them on your sort of days off. And so I knew the school and to a certain extent, so I kind of knew what to expect. But then obviously it was, it was a little bit of a culture shock as well, because you come from Sharjah English school, which is, I, I how do I say this in these, in these uh, politically sensitive times, but a, a predominantly white, you know, very British is the Sharjah English school. And it was like, you know, uh, all English language. Uh, and so to go into something that was other than that was, so different but then again you know you'd had enough experience with with uh, with Arab culture previous to that that it wasn't really that much of a big deal but you noticed that it was a change and um yeah so then you just immersed in Arab culture you learned so much about uh how Arab boys behave you know obviously an all-boys school for those at home as well you know so <laughs> let me push you on that though because was it really familiar to you as somebody with some experience of Arab culture? Because there's quite, there's quite a diverse set of Arab cultures. So I, I'm what mm. it, it was a very Emirati school. Yeah, but even that, uh, I, 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 I've always had an experience, even in Sharjah, of, of, of just people living around you. Um, and there'll be Emiratis. That's the guys I'm playing football with every day. And so you kind of, little bits and bobs, do, they, they come out, you know? But uh, oh, no, once you go to school and you're properly immersed in it, then, then you get a real feel for it. You get a real understanding of Emirati culture and visit people's houses. And, and you learn a lot because, you know, there's very much that, and it's still here today, possibly even worse than ever, is that kind of very much us and them mentality. But at the same time, I, I don't think you can find a more welcoming people than, than you have. It's certainly amongst the, the, the people that we know. Is, you, you know, is this something, you know, it's quite, uh, it's something I, I wish more sort of expatriates would, 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 were, were able to experience. You know, there's something quite nice about it. As crazy as this city is, and it is undeniably crazy, it, you know, there's a, there's a sort of heartwarming kind of uh, something that comes from all that. I always think we were really lucky to just have that level of depth of interaction and, and, mm. and experience of the Emirati culture by being at that school. Absolutely. Tell me more about the school. What, what uh, again, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it, uh, you know, size, teachers, mm. the types of students that were in there. Uh, what, are, what are some memories? We were absolutely spoiled. I know you say in terms of the culture there, but we were absolutely spoiled. That, that school is a, it's a holiday camp. It's, it's, a, it's a club med for education. It's just everything was just the best of everything. At one point, it was after we left, I mean, it still just got worse. They actually built an, an entire recording studio. And to this day, I think the only person that used it, the only kid that used it was my little brother. An entire studio. It's like, yeah, go build a studio. Why? Because someone's chosen GCSE music. Yes, basically. You're like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And you're like, yeah, that's what they did. And it was a good studio, too. I recorded it myself. But I recorded it with the music teacher because no one else was using it. It was nice to kind of have that. Because we music was sort of discouraged when we were there until like the final two years, we didn't even have a music teacher until, you know, it was just one of those things. And that's, that's kind of, that's 
fairly prominent, I guess, across the Khaliji culture, certainly, the idea that the music, whilst not necessarily haram, is kind of, it's way, way down on the list of, of, sort of priorities and things like that. You know? it's, it's, yeah. But yeah, the, 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 the facilities were incredible. The, oh, they're renovating, by the way, do you hear this? You're not getting the alumni emails? Yeah, neither am I. I don't know why they've, they've blocked you and I. Is it just you and me? What have we done? Ramsey's getting them. All the boys in the RSB WhatsApp group are getting them. That's the other thing as well, the RSB group. It's, uh, I think you're the only one not on it. Well, who's alive, you know? It's, uh, it's a fun group. It's just interesting to see the diversity of how different kids in our class, have, you know, have gone. Some are, you know, like Hamid, you know, lovely guy. And, but he's, he's quite sort of quite, you know, how do we say, he's quite religious. He's, he's kind of gone down that route. Uh, so it's him kind of sending out to, you know, uh, excerpts from, from the Quran or something like that. And then you've got eyes that the, the guys at the other end of the cultural spectrum who are just sending pictures of, of women in bikinis and stuff like that. I'm just always, and you know that he's giggling to himself. He's like, oh, you know, all this kind of, this kind of thing. But you just, you can't help but love, the, you know, there's still that community, you know? It's kind of funny. Was it a but, warm um, culture, uh, an aggressive culture? And, and who were the kids? Who were your classmates? I remember um, who was, so we had, we were in, opposite years, you and I. And then in our side, we had, I had, uh, so Najib, Indian. Um, uh, I had Liam Haslam. We had Liam Haslam in our class. Where uh, are these folks from? Just give it, just to you get it, give uh, us a sense of like the, the makeup of the, of the class and the school. Liam, Liam was from a different planet. Um, <laughs> I can remember, Liam, I thought, from English parents, but there's some kind of Australian connection, because I think he's there now. He's in this group as well. Um, uh, then there's sort of, sort of myself and Liam would be from the UK. Najib from India, although born and, and raised, obviously, in Dubai. Um, and the rest was all Khaliji, all uh, Dubaian, specifically. So from either sort of Zabil or Nadashiba, basically. So to explain, Nadashiba would been would have been the sort of uh, the part of Dubai where Maktoum bin Rashid's family would sort of live, and that's where our school was. Not far from where Maidan is. If people are wondering where, you know, Maidan on the the big horse racetrack, and then you've got Zabil down the road, which is now where uh, Sheikh Mohammed's sort of home is, and would I think would have been uh, Sheikh Rashid before him, right? And so. The kids were basically from there and there. That's it. They they just they kind of that was their their sort of knockabout areas. But yeah, that was it. That was uh, not the it's still quite diverse. And you're talking about guys who were like they were very sort of westernized. Remember, I mean, the beautifully named Ahmed Hamad uh, Al Swedi, uh, lovely guy. He went to school primary school with you, didn't he? So a lot yeah. of these guys would have been sort of that kind of desk, very kind of western very kind of british english curriculum centric and so they would have had a fair amount of influence from you know some sort of uk culture anyway certainly you know quite traveled and and whatnot so was it friendly aggressive uh, just kind of a boy a typical boys school do you think there was anything else uh it's sort of maybe a little different or unique about the our experience i think i kind of look at it in a, in a way in that it has that sort of level of diversity that every class in every school in every 
country in the world has. There's always going to be someone that's going to be a little bit of a bully. And there was, there was always a couple of guys like that. Uh, there's always going to be the, the sort of like the jokers of the group. But that was, I think, I remember a lot of humor being in throughout our years, collectively. There was a lot of humor. We had a very, you know, I remember being a lot of laughs. I remember there's, you know, I remember Abdullah was such a bully. An, an angry little guy, I guess. Bless him. And now he's just the nicest guy ever, you know. But other than that, yeah, I, I remember a lot of laughs. I remember, you know, you, you, you build up your your little uh, clique, you build up your sort of uh, repertoire of jokes that you have, the teachers that you would make fun of um, for whatever reason and whatever. Oh, my brother sent me a picture of, a couple of pictures of me from school the other day, actually. Weirdly, out of the blue. I don't know where he got them. One was, uh, I put him onto the group as well. So what is of me and Saif Moroshed uh, trying to play football? It didn't look very pretty. We were not very good. <laughs> yeah. But that was the thing as well. You remember, I mean, we, had, we had a school of about 120 people, of 120 students, right? And so we were spoiled. I mean, the number of teachers was ridiculous. The fact that I didn't do better at school is an embarrassment. You know, it was, uh, it was just, you, you had everything you needed to, to, to succeed. Well, please send yeah. those photos our way. We're building I, up an I, archive I will. of footage from the more. era. Tell us a little bit about the interaction with teachers and and uh, and maybe tell us a little bit about your origin as a musician and, and as mm. a creative person. Was that something you had coming into Rashid School or something that you explored and, and cultivated there? I have, a, I have an, an older brother who, who um, God love him, he's, he's quite um, a very sort of focused individual, shall we say. And he, uh, he, he picked up the guitar before I moved to Rashid and he needed someone to play along with him. And so that just became me. I was always his little little guy. I was always the little sidekick. And so whether it was going out to play football, you're, you're coming with me, or we're going out to play this, we're going on the bikes, you come with me. And I was always, we were always super close. Thick as thieves. Absolutely hated each other and absolutely loved each other. You know, that kind of extremities, you know, just in and out of each other's pockets. He needed someone to play guitar with. And so that was me. I was just like, okay, I'll do it. And that was, it's the weirdest way to say it. It's not like, I can't even say I saw you know, I saw Jimi Hendrix play a song once and I, I was completely inspired. I didn't, I didn't see anyone do it. I was like, I was told, go play guitar. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And that's kind of, I kind of stood me in good stead, I think, because I don't think at any point I've ever, it was always like Neil wanted to show off and I'd be the guy sort of backing behind him. And it was so like, I think that's kind of influenced me in a way in that don't try to be the show off. Don't try and, you know, I'd like to think it's all about the music. It's all about how it sort of sounds, not necessarily, you know, whether or not you can do 400 notes in a second, you know, because it's kind of, so I think the subtleties of everything became more important, you know, I like that. Mikey, was there a music scene for kids when you were, te when you were a teenager, people in bands and did you play anywhere? Not really. I remember, oh, I should find this photo for you as well. It was our first gig. It was me, my brother, Neil. So I would have been 14, I reckon. Again, at the Charge of Wanderers Club, this one I mentioned earlier on. So it was, uh, I was 14. We, so it was me, him, me and my brother, uh, Daniel Kerr, who I see intermittently. He visits Dubai every now and again. He's living in the UK. Uh, and a guy called John Paul on drums. And uh, we played the Charge of Wanderers Club. So it was basically a sports club. So there's football pitches where they have like the local kind of pub team basically. Um, and we 
we did a gig there and all we played was like Anthrax and, and Megadeth and Metallica and just completely inappropriate songs. These little teenagers just enjoying what they do, playing to, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 somethings in this fairly dingy, crappy clubhouse. And that was our first gig, I remember that. But other than that, no, Dubai's never had, and still doesn't have a, I sort of, well, it does to a certain extent, it's gotten much better, but um, no, it never had anything like that. It, again, it was, it was very much, and we're struggling through it now. The idea that it's not a priority, it's not cultural priority really for people to do music. Arts is important, but it tends to, if it, you know, it's gonna be visuals, it's gonna be even contemporary art. It's like, no, we, can you not just do another picture of a painting of a horse or a camel? And you're like, okay, all right, that's fine. So, but you're seeing that a lot more now, but again, music, no. We're having that issue now in, in, in terms of, you're looking at governments around the world in, in lockdown um, and how they're trying to react to different industries and how they support industries that are suffering. And I saw something today from um, a great director, you know, Armando Iannucci put on Twitter earlier about how, you know what, the entertainment industry offers more to the UK, for example, than like oil and, and something you know, combined, you know, in terms of all the things it offers. And yet the government's not really considering a package to give to those that are struggling within the industry. And here we're looking at that in that, yeah, we'll be, we'll be bumped down the list of priorities as well. Admittedly, you know, it's not, tourism industry is, is big, but I don't think Dubai would even consider that music is an essential part of, of that. But that is how they look at it. We are tourists. So I'm just quite interested as a musician, something must, you know, you've always been playing music. You've always it's been part of your soul. And yeah. is it something that just, just came to you? Are, you? are you just always needing to make music? I am, by my own admission, the laziest musician that you'll ever meet. Possibly, you know, I have that, um, I have that, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a necessity, I don't think. It's not like I wake up in the morning and go, what shall I work on? I think I have that for various different things. I do write a lot more than I think I, I, I compose, if that makes any sense. Um, I, I'll be more sort of like a wordy person these days than I, I, I kind of do, you get the words done and then music sort of comes later. Whereas before it was, it was the other way around for me. It was like, no, everything had to be based on a, a funky riff that I found. And you're like, no, it, it's, I've got into this idea of word painting and how, you know, it has a, it has a vibe, it has a, a concept and then the music should come from that. There's nothing that annoys me more than you listen to a song that, that is, you know, the most tragic or sort of, uh, um, sort of depressing sort of lyrics and then someone puts it in, an, in a major key and it's 150 BPM and it's got hi-hats and you're like really, it's, it's like the music is so happy and yet the, the lyrics are literally tragic. You know, the song Tragedy might be a good example, which is a shame because obviously the Bee Gees are geniuses, but you know, that's certainly something that I've, I've kind of learned about myself. I tend to go, you know, but then again, something once something hits you, you know, you, you get an idea, you have to sort of write it down. I do have voice notes and notes all over the place that uh, I try to keep together and then make something of. I've, I've, the lockdown was good for that actually because you've got these, this mess of notes. And I think the, one of the reasons I, um, I, 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 bl I blame my, uh, my own sort of laziness or my lack of delivery in terms of being creative, in terms of recording or composing on this, uh, it's a lack of focus. 
it's like I, I get so easily distracted by things and this conversation will probably lead off into nine different tangents as well because I lack that focus. So the good thing about the lockdown was the idea that, all right, I'm going to take a week, find all the scraps of paper and all the, no the notes on my phone or my, uh, my computer or wherever they are and assemble them and put them into some, even just a structure, some order. And it was great because you're kind of going, all right, you, you kind of go, oh, wow, I, I quite like that. That sticks. And then you're whittling out all the, the crap. Do you know what I mean? You, you kind of get rid of all that stuff as well. I mean, what, what interests me about your story, Mikey, and I've known you for a few years, is that most people with your ambition and your skill in music would have left Dubai and moved to London or a city where music is supported culturally. Mm. But what I notice about you is that, uh, and I, I say this because in my interview process, people have told me about memories about you and your music. Uh, for example, your video you made in Ibo or Nicholas once told me about a song you played to him that changed one night and that it, it, it's a memory that stuck with him for years, a beautiful song you've played to him. So what I noticed is that, is that you might be a muse to your friends around you, but you chose to stay in Dubai and, and, and almost just be a musician in a space that doesn't necessarily allow you to, doesn't support you uh, commercially. So there's obviously a set of choices that you made in your life mm. uh, that kept you to the city and I'm just wondering what it is. Um, it, it's, it's, I think the, the, I'm not saying I've fallen out of love with the city. It's definitely home, it's still home. I think in the last few years I considered the idea that there are other places out there I, I should be considering maybe. I think I, I kind of made the choice years ago that not that I was uh, not going to be like a superstar or, 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 or sort of at least um, making any kind of career out of original material. Whilst I never stopped doing that, I kind of, you know, you, you set yourself that kind of, uh, that vision of, well, where can I go in the world that will offer me what Dubai offers me? And I'm sort of contradicting the support is there to the, to the, to the extent that I am allowed to play music for a living. I, I, I make a, a, a relatively, I think decent living out of it. Um, and I don't think there's anywhere really in the world that would offer me that as well, just in terms of financial reward. That's a terrible way of looking at it because it takes away the artistry and all of it because you, and, and it's the idea as well that if, if I am, you know, resigned to sort of doing cover versions and, and singing songs, I get away with, um, if I don't want to do a particular song, I don't do it. And, and you, you, you want to make people happy, but at the same time, you've got your own set of, I know standards to kind of live up to. And so if, if, if someone else comes up and asks me to do Hotel California one more time, I'm going to punch them square in the neck. I like, I, I can't do it. Like I don't, I won't. As beautiful and, and legendary as the song is, I can't, A, I don't do it justice and on, 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 no one can on their own, but also I'm sick to death of the bloody thing. But I guess what you're saying is, is that as an artist, you are supported by the city then because it, you are, I'm, what uh, well, yeah, it, it, to that extent, yeah, I think for, for, there's, there's no denying that there is, there is a living to be made for it, from it. I think I've been also, I've been lucky. I know people that aren't doing quite as well. People who I consider better musicians or better singers, you know, who, who don't have, they haven't had the, the opportunities, I guess, that I've had. Um, but in terms of, it's tough in that oh, the whole licensing thing is, is, is the main thing behind it. And, and God knows Shahab and I have, have been discussing this for years and years but I mean back in 
2003, it was very much, you had to get a license to do this. And it's a, it's a form of taxation, basically. But they, it, it's so expensive to the point at which it, it, you, you can't really justify, you know. I think if they, if they found a way of, of reducing that, it would allow people to be more flexible with their music schedules, allow more of it and more diversity. And then, and then who knows where it could go from there. But we've been having that conversation for 15 years. It's that not going away. Reason, that was a big reason we avoided the licenses in the first <laughs> or two of throwing yeah. music yeah. events. That's why we were I know, and radar. Yeah, it was, it's a shame we didn't manage to avoid the fines that we got from not having those licenses too, though. <laughs> because, you know, you, you get fined and that's a minimum 20 grand, 20,000 dirhams. So, you know, in around, what was it, 5,000 sterling, 4,500 pounds sterling. And that's just for, for not having a music license, you know. And sometimes if, you, if you're persistent, they'll shut you down. And we got shut down. Uh, one of the opening nights, I believe. Just before we got there, I think, wasn't it? We were out in the desert or something. We had some function we were at out in the desert. We were driving back to catch, I don't remember who was playing, but Nick and uh, Satyan were, were in, the, in the club. And yeah, licensing shut down. <laughs> we show up to an empty club, closed doors. So Just I think that, carry on. Sorry, uh, do you want to finish that thought? No, no, I mean, that was, that was pretty much it. It's just that the licensing is, is, is a major uh, impact on, on there not being that, that, that place for, you know, and, and, and going back to your initial point, we're talking about, you know, as, as, as youngsters, as, 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 there's no, you know, there's no sort of grassroots really because, you know, it's 21 and over in, in, in the bars and there's, there's, there's not that many other outlets where people can go and play. So this is, that's, that's where we are. It used to drive a lot of the, the scene. I don't know if underground is the right word, but more about house mm. parties and people's <clears throat> yeah. places and after parties and, yeah. and so on, where there was a little bit more. And I think now that I, that I think back on it, it it's really a, a matter of a combination of wanting control very tight control on um, media and uh, you know anything that is any content live content that is being out there having to go through uh, kind of a vetting process right and mm -hmm. also like you said there's there's a, a pure financial aspect of it which people Dubai builds itself as tax-free but Dubai <laughs> needs to pay the bills so it, it there's a lot of taxation actually kind of indirect yeah. tax and they, and they increased it recently. There was, they, they went from uh, 5 to 7%, I think. Was that VAT maybe? Maybe that's just for the sort of like hotel industry. But that's just for me, it just seems like they're going the wrong way. I mean, if anything, the lockdown should have made an already, I think, struggling economy, which it was before the lockdown happened, is on a sort of downturn. Uh, the one thing they've got to do is completely rethink how they're doing things. And instead of doing that, they're, they're kind of, getting a little bit worse. And I think there's a, there's a worry of that. Because I mean, certainly from the industry I'm working in now, you know, you're looking at, um, you know, bars, pubs, clubs, restaurants, that kind of thing with, with, with sort of live entertainment. The only, the one major criticism is these days that, that it's so expensive that people will only go out if they have some form of, of discount, right? So you're going out to get a brunch, which is obviously, you know, Dubai's national pastime these days basically a, just a, an orgy of, of drink for about four or five hours on a Friday, or now they do it on Thursdays and Saturdays, and it's just ridiculous. So you're paying an X amount, and you're, you're drinking your weight in alcohol, 
basically that's the, the way people do it. Um, and if it's midweek, then they're doing happy hours or they're doing two for ones or the, you know, you familiar with the old entertainer vouchers, all that kind of thing. There's this book, you get like vouchers, so it'll be like you hand in a voucher, you get two for one. Now it's all on an app somewhere and there's like a nine other apps doing this exact same thing. So the vast majority of, of, of drinks that are being sold, I mean, they're sold for say just under 50 dirhams. That's basic, that's standard across the board for a pint or a, a mixed alcoholic drink, whatever. Um, so about a tenner, 10 pounds sterling. The reality is that when you, when, you, when you add it all together, the, the, the real price that you're paying because of all the, the, the deals that you're getting is probably close to 30. So bring the, bring the average to 30 and then get rid of all the deals. And then you've got a, a normal, sustainable kind of market that, so the only people that are paying full price are tourists. And if you're paying that much money, you're not coming back. You're going back to Spain next year or, or Greece or Thailand or wherever you're going. You're not coming back to Dubai. And so they're not making that, you know, they, they, they're still selling this idea that this is like a, you know, like a, like a high flyers mecca, pardon the, the, the comparison, but you know what I mean? Like, it's, oh, we go there because, because we're rich. You're like, no, those days are gone. You, the, the numbers aren't there to sustain it. The, the city's getting bigger and bigger and yet emptier and emptier. And it's, it's getting really worrying. So in order for these prices to come down, uh, you've got to get the approval of the booze companies who are part owned by government. You have to get the government to take the cap taxation down as well. And you have to get everyone involved and no one wants to do it. No one wants to budge. And that's, that's the scary mentality that has, has yet to even consider changing across the board amongst, amongst the big decision makers, you know, and that's, I think they're going to be forced into it rather than prepare for it, you know, proactively. And it's you know, interesting times. Sounds like you know a lot of the, the details of the live music and, and I guess the general entertainment, if you like, uh, scene in Dubai. Maybe I just, just realized we should give our listeners a little bit of context. So mm. you moved back in 2003. Can you just give us, tell us the, the brief kind of trajectory, both professionally in terms of what you've been doing in Dubai since then, but also creatively, what were some of the creative projects and, you know, whether it's music, Samir mentioned the music video that yeah. you were involved in along the way. Yeah, it was, it was weird because you kind of, I remember recording that in that, that villa in the meadows, that song. And I loved the version because it's so lo-fi and it was done on a, a crappy, like just an SM58 microphone. And I didn't have, all the software you can get these days, the garage bands and all that kind of stuff, you can get, you know, freeware that you can record on your, every device that you own. Back then it was like, I had, I think it was a, a laptop I bought off you or your, I think it was your mum's Apple Mac, like the old Mac. And I was just doing it one track at a time. So literally, you know, a few guitar tracks, a few vocal tracks, and then you threw it in there. And it was just fun to do with no experience really of, of, of recording myself. I've had been recorded by other people, but I know it was always something that was a little bit sort of distant to me. I remember doing it. And then even like I did recorded the drums, but I only had one mic. So I do each individual drum separately. So like, so it's like just hitting a bass. What are you doing? Just hitting this bass pedal. No reason. Just bang for like four minutes. And then the same for the hi-hats and the same for the writing. And it was just, it's a really fun process. And I love that. And I just, I, I quite liked that song. And that was, uh, that was my song, uh, Director's Cut, it's, I think it's on YouTube still. Um, that was my little tribute to our 
old uh, dear friend Paula Flynn. The director's cut was all about sort of him and how he was, you know, before he passed was um, was uh, a lot more sort of proactive in his creativity. You know, I remember, you know, he always loved his travel and he was always very good at teaching and very sort of passionate about that. But he was spending a lot more time on his videos and, and, and music and all that sort of stuff. And, and that was all sort of, that all came from him. Other than, I mean, so, yeah, but then you kind of, you do one and then you kind of like, oh, you get distracted and you go off onto other things. And I, I, again, that's my, my lack of focus. And I, I didn't really sort of deliver much beyond that. But I like, that video was great because I had a great um, director you should meet. He's in London, I think he's in London. Karan Kandari, uh, lovely guy. He was, um, he's directed all sorts of uh, things since then. Loads of music videos, very famous sort of like, you know, well, very famous, but uh, sort of indie bands, Franz Ferdinand, various, a few others. He had a, he did a Bollywood film, very sort of underground Bollywood film called, uh, oh my God, I've forgotten it. How embarrassing. Anyway, fantastic movie, proper, um, you know, it, at the time when even Bollywood didn't have a, a, a an un, you know an underground kind of scene, he was he he did that, and we just loved filming in the in the club because we obviously we had Ibo to play with, the glitter ball, um, <laughs> the famous glitter ball, uh, just glistening in you know in in these lights, and we just we had a day of just recording, and then we had no real plan other than it's like gonna be black and white, we had a TV, uh, with footage of me on the TV next to me in, in, in real life. We had all our friends just come join. If you watch the video, see Shahi's in it. Um, Sadi is in there pretending to put makeup on me, things like that. And it's just, it's just a little bit of polite anarchy. It had no real direction, but we loved it. It was just a fun space. It's good to have Ibo that, that did that. Mikey, going back to 2003 and when you got back to Dubai, mm. what exactly was, were you doing? I remember meeting you and you were working with Ibo. Um, mm. But uh, what was your role and what was going on at the time creatively in the city and of like, yourself? I was kind of like sort of like a, a kind of admin kind of manager for the place. So I'd be the go-between between the guys in the office of making bookings. I didn't really get involved with bookings that much. So it was never my forte. It was always, I mean, you, I, and I loved it because I learned so much from it, just from the guys, the Shahabs, the Shazas, all these people that would throw different ideas of, you know, DJs and acts that I'd previously never heard of, but I'd go down and I'd sort of, I'd sort of manage them, you know, I'd make sure they got to the place on time and make sure that, you know, the, the, the hotel was managing the bar. So you you're the go between, between that. Tony, remember Tony Naronio? Legendary Tony. He really helped us out. And that was, yeah, so it was, it was, it was that, it was kind of, Managing the door a lot of the time, you know, the, some of the, some of the, I missed, I missed so many great acts simply because you know, some of the cues were insane outside. Questlove, oh, both, oh, just legendary, you know, and you're just lucky to meet the guy after and it's just jumping. And you're like, oh, why am I here? And you're basically just explaining to people that you've known for a few years that, you know, I really like you, but you're not, you, you can't get in. How did how Unless they were really, unless they were really, really hot and I snuck them in the back door a couple of times. How genuinely had, did that. <laughs> how had Dubai changed since you had left and come back? I think, you know, that was the... Dubai had started its sort of revolution. Because, I mean, Dubai's always been expanding. It's like, you know, it's, it's like the universe. It's, it's kind of... Since, since 
the, the, the minute we all arrived, since the day that, you know, Shahab was born, 77, whatever, there was something in around that time, certainly early 80s, where it's just like, right, just growing. It's just growing at this kind of whatever rate. And then it's just before 2003, it had that, that first big push was Burj Al Arab. And that would have been the first one. Was that 99 maybe it came up, Shahab? I can't remember. Um, and so that was sort of like the focus has been on there. It's like, all right, suddenly Dubai's on the map. They're doing this ridiculous building in the sea. And then 2003 was the next revolution because it just, it was round about that point. And I had no idea. You know, you, you hear about little things. You kind of go, oh, go for Dubai. Well done. You know, you see it from a distance and you kind of go, excellent. In 2003, you just had some sort of new media coming, just bubbling up. You know, we're just in the, you know, the internet has suddenly become, you know, a borderline reliable sort of form of sort of information transfer, you know, transfer. And you're kind of like, you're learning a lot more. And then just that these ideas suddenly came out. I remember is before maybe Ibo, I guess, maybe, but this, you're, we're, we're building a, an island in, 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 the, in the sea. And you're like, that's ridiculous. Don't be silly. And you know, we're building this business bay. I remember Shahab, you, I remember you telling me you went for a little wander through a construction site once. And it was just, it was vast. You look at Business Bay now, and we don't think we don't think twice about it. But it's, it's it's dozens upon dozens upon dozens of buildings that that just came out of nowhere, like like it's just blossomed out of the ground. And they, you know, they don't they don't mess around here. Like they get things done quickly, unless you know more recently when money runs out and you see abandoned buildings with you know cranes sticking out of them. But that's that was too, that was the the beginning of that that next revolution. And then, you know, five years later, I guess, that big financial hit. And you, you, you kind of started, saw it from there. I think that, that golden age was, was 2003 to 2008, when everything, everything looked like it was going Dubai's way. And, you know, in every sense, you know, there, there seemed to be money everywhere. Rents were extortionate, you know. You look at the how much they developed since then and i mean it's crazy you're looking at back in the day you know you'd, you'd, you'd rent a, a one bed for a hundred and twenty thousand dirhams and it wouldn't have been that good and now for less than half of that i can get a, a four bedroom villa out in one of these new developments out in the out in the sticks and you know it's 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 changed but definitely 2003 2008 it's got to be golden age i think so um, in that period of time, uh, how did you develop your, your creativity, your music? Hmm. I think in that time, I kind of, I, I made that transformation from doing the work that I was doing, which I loved, to, and then, and then joining sort of Infusion and then doing something that I think was definitely more, I, I definitely found myself a little bit like to where I am now, that kind of, you know, find your strengths, go with you know what. So Infusion was one of those things that you just, I just sat in and it fell together very, just so, so simply, just from the writing, from the, you know, organizing all of the, the, the sort of the magazine. And it was fun as well. And then at the same time as that, I was just supplementing the income by playing a, a gig a week here, a gig a week there, you know? Infusion, for those that don't know, uh, uh, hopefully you'll be talking to Charles, is a, is a, it was a free, um, nightlife magazine, very small format, sort of A6 or something it was, uh, small format uh, magazine. It was just basically pictures, but it'll tell you what was on, where it was on. 
Um, and so we managed that. Um, Charles Shaka created, I think, bought the, the the company out, and then and then employed me to to, to edit it. And so you, you get to interview all these different people that would be visiting from outside. So we got to interview some really great sort of DJs and, and musicians, uh, get to see some great concerts. Uh, that was really cool because you kind of, it's just effortless. It's not work. It's kind of, you know, you, it's something you, you want to do. And then musically, I was supplementing. So I started off, uh, the wonderful Nick Reese is a, he was a very good friend of Ibo's and, and now an excellent friend of, of, of mine. Um, he, he would always push and encourage me. He always liked, you know, for some reason, yeah, for some reason, what I did. And so he, he pushed me into the Irish village, introduced me to them, sort of said, give them the gig. I think actually what he did was he was working for one of the alcohol distribution companies, African and Eastern at the time. And they would sponsor various events for Ibone, so that's how we knew him. And then, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so he, he would actually, by his own admission, and to this day, his boss then, He's still here in Dubai, and he'd, he'd try and justify sending so much, usually in the format of of of, of stock that would go into the into the club, you know, so we could sell it on and then make the profit from that. And so he'd send in whether it's Smirnoff or some beers or whatever, and then he would sort of say, "Here you go, do this event, and then we'll put our branding behind it, whatever brand that we're using." You know, he was great at that. And then for me, he went up to the, the Irish Village. Now that's one of the oldest. Um, sort of bars here in Dubai is the tennis stadium near the airport. Uh, very well known, uh, wonderful bar. Um, the, the now GM, a guy called Dave, uh, Nick went to him and said, I like this singer, um, give him a gig. And then, and then I'll basically pay his salary <laughs> in terms, you know, he'll just send in like a few cases of Stella Artois or something, you know, every week. And it started like that. It was like, I, I was absolutely just lucky. You know, I was, I'd never thought to be proactive enough to go out and find gigs for myself. They were, I was just lucky to have them thrown at me. And so I'm blessed to be in the position I'm in now where I've kind of gone out and worked a little bit harder and just made it a full-time thing. So ultimately everything stopped when you realized, well, look, I can, I can cut my working hours by, you know, 80% and make, double the money and it was a very easy decision for me to do you know now now i'm just you know selling my soul to the musical devil but at the same time enjoying it i think that's the that's the goal right you've got to be able to do that how important is the role of alcohol in in dubai creatively and just generally it sounds to me like alcohol is quite a massive deal i mean it is in london but the way yeah. you speak about it and some people speak about it it seems like it fuels the city it does, yeah, because it doesn't have the alternatives that other cultures, other cities might have, whatever, in whatever form they will be. Alcohol is 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 <clears throat> it's rampant in Dubai to the point at which it, I think it's it's probably yeah to to an unhealthy level. I think. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I was out last night at um, another Irish bar, weirdly enough, and they were doing a, a, a midweek deal on a Monday night, like for you pay X hundred, X hundred dirhams and you just drink for three hours. And there's, there's something not healthy about that, but it absolutely, you're absolutely right. It fuels the city. Uh, in both good and bad ways, just bad ways. I... You're talking to a man with a hangover. I mean, there's not really a, <laughs> you know, you t it's it, you, outside looking in, it's, it, it, it is unhealthy. 
but at the same time, economically, absolutely, it's, it's Dubai absolutely needs it. And creatively? Hmm. Yeah, I, I've never found alcohol to be that much of a creative influence. I think it's more of a, again, a, a distraction that I can scarcely, you know, afford to have. I think, you know, but again, it allows us to, it allows me to do the job that I do. Does it help creatively? Not so much. I, I don't think you'll ever find me sitting down after having a couple of glasses of wine and, and, and being sort of creative. I think it tends to be, you have what you think might be great ideas. And then when you read them in the morning, you go, wow, you drunken idiot. They were terrible. And you're just like, yeah, I think this, um, as much as I enjoy a drink, I, I, I can't in all conscience, like, you know, sell it any more than that. You got married in Dubai, didn't you? Is this correct? No, I got married in Scotland. Sorry. Okay. And did you meet your partner in Dubai? I did, but we have, we had, well, this is the soon to be ex-partner, but uh, you know, don't worry too much about the details of that. But yeah, we, we met in Dubai, similar kind of circumstances. She, she was actually born in Abu Dhabi, but then grew up in Scotland. And so I was obviously, you know, we had a similar kind of upbringing, um, similar sort of backgrounds. Um, Yeah, we, uh, we met just obviously, you know, sort of like a mutual love of music and all that kind of thing. What's it like, I'm curious, as a, a Caucasian man, uh, growing up in Dubai and dating an Arabic girl or women of color, what, would, was it dangerous? Did you get in trouble or was it okay? Were you accepted? Were you rejected? Hmm. I, I, I don't remember any... I don't remember any, any real issues with it, to be honest. You know, I think it's, it's, that's one of the beautiful things about this place that it is, it is so culturally diverse that everyone just, I mean, I think it has its, its level of uh, sort of racism to a degree, but not on the, not on the, not at the levels that we're looking at in, you know, in, in the States right now and, and all, in fact, all over the world right now, you know, I don't think it has that. I think, uh, and that's one thing to be said about it, you know, it, there's something quite nice about the fact that you know you see uh, a, a white dude with a with a black girl and you're like you don't blink you don't think about it whereas you you know you see that back in my hometown Dingwall 5,000 you know rural sort of farmer folk that they'll, they'll bat an eyelid and kind of go wow you know that's that's still a rarity in 2020 to see something like that which is sad in a way but you know that's that's the beauty of this place the diversity so, so growing up in Dubai in the 90s, the 80s, the noughties, you felt fairly accepted and integrated into the, the, the cultural Malay. I think so. I, I, I've never felt, I've never felt um, sort of uh, as an outcast. I think the interesting thing about being sort of in my position is that you are, you're, you're, you're never quite at home at any point in that you, I don't, whilst I, I, I'm a proud, you know, flag carrying, flag waving Scotsman, I, you know, you go back to Scotland, they're kind of like, yeah, but you're kind of Arabic as well, really. The upbringing you've had, the mum that you've got, 
you know and so you're kind of like you're you're not shunned you're always welcomed and then people sort of like they, they actually find you like oh, like a wee curio you know you're like a, a like a little novelty he's like <laughs> look at the look at the scottish arab guy and then so you're you're never 100 percent part of that sort of clique but nor do you nor do i want to be i mean and then you come here and you're sort of as most people are expatriates you're foreign so you're not part of that cultural makeup exactly either but here that's fine because who is you know it, it, it it's it's makeup is it, it it comes from that diversity and so it, it kind of fits perfectly but um unlike some expats uh, one thing i noticed about you mikey is that you mix across uh ethnicities and across boundaries you know so so you you've kind of you're, very, you're able to cross cross worlds is that unique to you or is that something that's quite normal in dubai now i think i think there's there's something to be said for dubai teaching teaching you preparing you for travel around the world it encourages it and i think prepares you for it once you're there i think there's something very cool about that i mean i can't pinpoint it but it's just the fact that you learn so much i mean a lot of it would be would be sort of um passive learning as well you just you're right you know as a kid you know I'd, I'd sit in like house parties at my parents house and just like the english guy would show up the scottish guy would show up the iranian from next door would, would show up with his wife and you know and then there's the south african who would show up you know alongside them um and then you know you're the the, the indian guy your dad works with is, is here and he's like there's the the you know just you name it you just you just they're just there they're just they're around that's just that's normal so whenever people ask you like what's it like in dubai you're like it's what's normal he's like no it's not really anything that they might have necessarily experienced you know what i mean i think the, the so the next thing you know you're going to uh you know cape town on holiday and you're like well you're a little bit more prepared because you've met that guy you've known him for 20 years and he's like he says this and he says that he talks in a certain way don't go to that part of the town and you're like little things like that you're like you whereas i mean i can't imagine someone from uh you know say my neck of the world up in the north of scotland actually understanding how what to expect in in somewhere like i don't know cairo <laughs> although cairo is maybe a bad example <laughs> but yeah i think it prepares you for it so would you say uh with 100% clarity, Dubai is your home. Yeah, I think it has to be, isn't it? In a, in a very weird way though, because you're not, you know, you could be here as long as, 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 as we have been here. I mean, nearly 40 years, it'd be 40 years next year. You don't, you, you, no one's giving me, you know, national, the, the local passport or anything. Um, I don't know if I want it. I'm not sure. But at the same time, yeah, what it's the closest thing I've got to home. Just out of curiosity, how would you define sorry, define home? What is home to you? Um home is is where you're I think just where you're most comfortable, where you where you where you 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 kind of fit in most naturally, I think. Do you know what I mean? I think I I can go to Scotland and have a wonderful time, but that's a holiday. You know, I love, I love my visits and I love, but I would struggle to go back there and live. Do you know, I think I would, uh, not impossible, 
but at the same time you whilst you even even going back there you know how things work you know how there's a certain lack of chaos that sometimes exists in Dubai there's a certain level of organized chaos I think it, you kind of get used to in this city and you're kind of like it's frustrating but well, you know it so you expect it and you find ways of of managing it and it's just like that's just that's just the way it is you know and that's it whereas in Scotland I'd be like yeah it's just I, I you don't it's like you know it's that almost trying to fit that upside down jigsaw piece into the wrong space you know you're like why it's not quite there it's fine it'll, it'll do a job but it's not quite right and I think here has that here has that kind of yeah but an ever-changing world ever shrinking in some ways um who knows I mean I think I've considered the idea of looking uh, further afield looking maybe east see somewhere that it's a new adventure, but nowhere's like offered me that that guaranteed peace of mind. You know, once I get there, I'll be I'll be settled. So until that happens, I'm I'm staying here. I'm gonna hand over to Shahab. Sweet. Where do you think you'll be, Mikey, in ten years? Um, I can see the background behind you. I'm gonna be right there. See that seat behind you? Uh, that's mine. I'm having it. <laughs> Caribou, I, my friend. Honestly, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not working right now. Obviously, there's no entertainment, right? So we should have. We should have mentioned that. That's the one downside of the, of the the lockdown is like I'm not earning. Um, and the one thing I I I I would miss is the idea that I have to come down and visit you there. It looks stunning. Where will I be? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I, I, Part of me thinks it would be sad to say, I'll be here, don't worry about it, I'm not moving anywhere. Because that's like, it almost like lacks adventure, lacks ambition or something. Uh, but then again, it's like, well, it's very possible. I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know. Here, Thailand, oh, I love my Thailand. I love uh, Samui. I, could, I, I think I could settle in Samui, but that's, again, I've not lived there. You kind of, you experience it, you know, I spend months on end there, and so you kind of get the idea of living life. But once you have to start working and, and uh, doing whatever, then, then that, that could change. And so I have this uh, <clears throat> great ambition where, because things are so seasonal here in Dubai, you know, it's like, it's what, 40 odd degrees every day here and getting hotter and hotter as, as summer comes. You know, you're this idea or this, this fantasy that you could go and spend six months of the year here, three in Scotland with family and three in like somewhere like that. It's not unrealistic, but you have to, you have to have it solid. You can't, you know, that would be something I'd consider, but you know, pipe dream maybe, don't know. Do you love Dubai? Mikey? <laughs> yeah, I guess I do. I, have, I definitely say it's a love-hate relationship. I think there's certain things that uh, are absolutely frustrating, I think. But at the same time, it's, it's given me so much as well. I have to thank it for it. Beautiful. Yeah, I, mm. I think we'll wrap there. Thank you very much, Mikey. Thank you, my brother. Thank you.
such a dreamer to put the world to rise. I stay home forever, but till to always makes a fire. I I'm so